Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Tonight's program was produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Vanessa Bohm, and Vilma V. Today's program includes noticias, news from the Americas, and a discussion of narco-vigilantes on both sides of the U.S.-Mexican border with the director of the film, Cartel Land, as well as Diez Mil Kilometros, 10,000 Kilometers, a film about a couple surviving a long-distance relationship. We'll hear from the first Chicana mystery series writer Lucha Corpi sharing excerpts from her memoir Confessions of a Book Burner and a conversation about the Soul Collective in Sacramento featuring Latino arts and images. We'll also offer listeners a chance to win tickets to the Peruvian indie pop duo Alejandro y María Laura in concert with Edna Vasquez on Saturday, July 25th at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts in San Francisco. We'll announce the moment and the number during the show. Stay tuned. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending July 5th. Ecuador. Hundreds of thousands of Ecuadorians gathered over the weekend to greet Pope Francis as he begins his three-country visit to Latin America. The Pope began his official visit to Ecuador by holding mass yesterday at the port city of Guayaquil. This is the Pope's second visit to the region since becoming Pope back in 2013. Pope Francis is the first leader of the Roman Catholic Church to come from South America. He has ignited the imagination of Catholics around the world with his emphasis on global poverty, inequality, and even climate change. The Pope appears to be particularly popular with young people from Latin America. I think uh, he can uh, awake uh, a new vision from from the kids, from the young people in Ecuador, so the people can uh, have a better, a new vision about what is the Catholic religion in Ecuador. From Ecuador, the Pope will travel to Bolivia tomorrow and will also visit Paraguay. He returns to the Vatican on July 12th. Cuba. The World Health Organization announced earlier this month that Cuba has become the first country in the world to eliminate the transmission of HIV and syphilis from mother to baby. Margaret Chan, the WHO's director general, called it, quote, one of the greatest public health achievements possible and an important first step towards an AIDS-free generation. Cuba's effort is part of a regional initiative which provides access to antiretroviral drugs for pregnant women in the Caribbean. Scientists believe that eradicating AIDS is feasible as long as prevention efforts continue to grow even in the absence of a cure for the disease. Cuba's achievement is seen as a major breakthrough in the campaign to rid the globe of the virus. Honduras. Over 50,000 Hondurans marched once again in the capital of Tegucigalpa, calling for the resignation of the Honduran president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. This is the sixth Friday in a row that the demonstrations have been held. It was the biggest march thus far, with protesters chanting that the Honduran president must go. The million-dollar corruption scandal is centered at the Honduran Institute of Social Security. In addition to calling for the resignation of the president, activists are also demanding an independent prosecutorial team similar to the United Nations-backed commission operating in neighboring Guatemala. President Hernandez has admitted that his 2013 presidential campaign received $150,000 from firms linked to the scandal, but claimed that neither he nor his party knew where the money came from. Mexico. In a decision published on June 19th, Mexico's highest court ruled that laws restricting marriage between a man and a woman were unconstitutional. The near-unanimous decision was immediately criticized by conservative and religious groups. In all but two of Mexico's 31 states, Cahuila and Quintana Roo, gay marriage is banned by local laws, but gay couples can petition the state courts and receive an injunction allowing them to marry. Mexican Supreme Court Judge Olga Sanchez said, quote, part of the population is for... 
part is against, but we don't see people by their sexual orientation, we see people. They are human beings with rights and we are analyzing how to protect their rights. Brazil. Last week, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff made her first ever state visit to Washington, D.C. Rousseff publicly canceled a planned state visit to the U.S. two years ago in the wake of National Security Agency revelations that her emails, phone calls, and text messages had been monitored by U.S. intelligence. President Obama reportedly reassured the Brazilian president that in the future, he would no longer place allied leaders under surveillance unless there was an overwhelming U.S. security need. President Obama did not formally apologize for the U.S. spying, however, as he has done previously with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes said, quote, We have not made it a practice to issue apologies related to our surveillance activities. Chile. In sports-related news, Chile ended almost a century of competing in the Copa America without ever claiming a title when they finally beat Argentina over the weekend. Neither team scored a goal during the 90 minutes of official play. Chile then upset Argentina with penalty kicks 4-1. The U.S. women's soccer team also scored a major victory, beating Japan in the Women's World Cup final this past Sunday in Vancouver, Canada. According to the Fox Network, which broadcast the game, the women's final was the highest metered market rating ever for a soccer game in the United States. Estados Unidos, finally tonight, Mario Manuel Madrid, better known as Sonny Madrid and one of the three founders of Lowrider magazine, passed away from prostate cancer in late June. Madrid was born in Yuma, Arizona, but moved to San Jose, California as a teenager. He admired Cesar Chavez and became politically active while attending San Jose State University. Madrid envisioned Lowrider magazine as a memory bank for the Mexican diaspora across the American West and Southwest. Co-founder Lorenzo Gonzalez said, quote, We use the vehicles as a medium to bring in the people. The ex-con, he felt part of the magazine. The guy with the nice car, he felt part of the magazine. The young Chicano college guy, he felt part of the magazine. Madrid was 70 years old. This has been a listing of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us cover, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Coming up next, Julieta Kuznir speaks with the director of the film Cartel Land. Listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza here on KPFA Radio. We have on the line with us Matthew Heineman. He's the director of Cartel Land, which premieres this Friday here in the Bay. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is an issue we've been talking about a lot. We're talking about the drug war. We're t- we talk a lot about the U.S. involvement in the drug war in Mexico, as well as all the ways that folks in Mexico are organizing to really take back and take control of their own land. Um, We have spent some time talking about the Auto Defensas on our program. Why don't you just take a step back and paint us the picture? There's a documentary that really tackles a lot of big themes. So why don't you give our listeners some context? Yeah, so Cartel is, is, is about these two different vigilante groups, one on uh, Michoacan, Mexico, and one on the Arizona side of the Mexico border. Both groups sort of risen up to fight against the same common enemy, the, the Mexican drug cartels. You know, I really wanted to sort of take this issue and sort of go beyond the headlines and put my camera right in the middle of the action. The story unfolded in a, in a way that I never could have dreamed of or imagined. At its heart of these two men, Tim Naylor Foley on the Arizona side and El Doctor, Jose Manuel Morales on the Mexican side. You know, they're both 55-year-old men. They both believe that the government has failed them. And they've both taken, quote-unquote, the law into their own hands to fight for what they believe in. The circumstances are quite different in the two stories, obviously. In Mexico, the violence is visceral. It's real. 80,000-plus people killed since 2007. 20,000-plus people disappeared. Whereas in, in Arizona, that's much more theoretical. 
much more of a fear that these Mexican drug lords will see its way across our borders. We're talking about the film Cartel Land, which opens this Friday. So in telling this story, it's tricky because a, a lot of people feel like they have no power and agency in terms of what's happening around them because of all these larger factors, you know, in Mexico, as we all know, most of the demand is in the U.S. and for drugs. And most people uh, don't want to be involved, but they, they find themselves somehow intertwined with, especially Michoacan, you know, they, it's hard to escape um, narco violence. So talk to us about why you chose these particular characters to address the question of this regaining or feeling more agency in their own lives in terms of this constant war. Yeah, I heard about these two characters through news articles that I read. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated by these two worlds. And so I, you know, went about getting access to them. You know, I really wanted to, to show the effects of this narco-violence on everyday people and the response of everyday people rising up to fight back and then the ramifications of, of what happens uh, when they do so. And, you know, at first, especially on the Mexican side, it was sort of a classic Western guys in white shirts sort of fighting against guys in, in black shirts. And then over time, it became clear that the, the lines between good and evil were much more blurry than I initially thought. And, and I also became obsessed with trying to understand what was really happening with this, with this movement, who these guys really were. And, you know, I'm not a war correspondent. I've, I've, I've never been in, you know, combat zones before. And through this film, you know, I found myself in, in situations I never could have dreamed of, in, in shootouts between the cartel and the vigilantes, in you know, meth labs in the dark desert night. And so the, the film sort of evolved, and, and, and the, sort of the deeper that I got, the more and more I really wanted to understand, you know, what would happen. We're talking about Cartel Land, which opens up this Friday. It, it was part of the Sundance Film Festival, and it won an award there, and now folks can check it out here in the Bay. So I'm speaking with director Matthew Heineman. So, Matthew, what are your things that you think maybe people who are only catching the headlines on the drug war and hearing about what's happening in terms of Mexico and the U.S., what are things that you think they may get out of watching your film that they wouldn't otherwise understand about this very complex war? First of all, I think the film gives you access in, into worlds that you've never seen before, or at least I've never seen before. I think both on the Mexican side and the U.S. side, it'll show people you know, a lot of things that are quite shocking. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't want to give away the end of the movie, but I think the lines between you know, cartel, government, vigilantes, they all become quite blurry in the end. And I think there's, there's many things that are quite shocking in the film and, and are quite important to understand if you care about this world. And if we have folks listening that maybe aren't able to go to the theater on July 10th? I think the best way is probably through Facebook. You know, our Facebook page is facebook.com slash So there are a lot of people listening who they've seen a lot of films touching on this theme of narco-violence. And a lot of us haven't just seen the films. Our families are living through it. So why is it so important for folks to go to the theater and see your film? For those of us living in America, I think we sort of hear about this narco-violence and we see it in the headlines, but what I really want to do with this film is get beyond that and to show people that there's a war that's happening. You know, we talk so much about ISIS, we talk so much about all these conflict zones around the, around the world. There's this war that's happening just in this country just south of us. You know, 80,000 plus people killed, 20,000 plus people disappeared. This is a war that we're responsible for, that we're connected to. You know, we're consuming the drugs that are the basis for the violence. And, you know, what I wanted to do with this film is, is sort of show people that world up close and personal in a very visceral, emotional way through characters and through people, not through talking heads, not through experts, not through government officials, but through the very people that are, that are living, operating, and affected by this world. That's the voice of Matt Heineman. He's the director of Cartel Land, which opens this Friday. Thank you so much for being with us, Matt. Thank you so much.
Today's guest is Lucha Corpi, the educator, the novelist, the poet. She wrote the first Chicana detective series, and a wonderful series it is. She writes beautiful poetry, and now she's given us her inspiring memoir. Welcome, Lucha Corpi. Gracias, Nina. Es un placer. We're so glad you're here, and we're so glad you've brought a copy of your new memoir. Could you tell us a little about it? Well, the title is Confessions of a Book Burner, Personal Essays and Stories. People ask me why Confessions of a Book Burner. And for that, you will have to read the book and come to the last essay, which is called Confessions of a Book Burner, and you will have all the answers you want. That's what I found as a reader, that I'd be reading along, I think there are six essays, and when I finally got to the last one and it told what that was about. It was like finding a little prize in the Cracker Jack box. Like, <laughs> oh, this is what she means. Yeah, yeah. It was a very exciting process. I found reading it a very exciting process because times would bounce back and forth as the themes wove in and out of your life. But the things that seemed always to be there was writing literature, and also being Mexican, and also being in the United States, being a Chicana as well, and always being a woman, and for a long time, the struggle of being a single mother. Those were themes that seemed to be reoccurring, and for me, were fascinating. And thank you. I started this book actually planning it, thinking about it, when my first granddaughter was born, which was in 1997, I believe. I started thinking about it. I wrote a couple of essays, The Four Free and Invisible, which has to do with my learning to read and write in this very small town when I was four. And I realized as I was revising those essays this time with a different perspective that I have lived my life in four different places. My childhood, which I spent in Jaltipan, Veracruz. Then I spent my adolescence in San Luis Potosí, which is a central Mexico. Then at age 19, I got married. And I came to Berkeley, where I lived 10 years and actually went to school at USC Berkeley. Then, finally, I moved to Oakland, where I was a teacher for 31 years, and where I lived and was more a city that I enjoyed living in, despite all its bad reputation and everything, is one of the most ethnically integrated cities in California. And for that reason, it has very particular problems, too. <laughs> but I was making a memory in a way of the time that I've spent in California, both in Berkeley and Oakland. I came across the border in 1964. So that means that 2014 is the 50th anniversary of my having come in September to the U.S. I had no idea whether I was going to stay here or not. I had no idea what was in store for me, you know. So one thing I found writing this book is that I don't have a lot of regrets that I somehow managed along the way to put things in perspective, to scrutinize my life in a way as I was having the experiences and then put things in order, do a little, you know, psychological housekeeping as I was going through bad times or good times and, you know, making peace with with whatever has happened and learn the lessons that are there and moving on as best I can. I learned to do that actually in Berkeley and Oakland because going through a divorce and being a single mom for 24 years is a tough time and it was full of all kinds of contradictions and ambivalence and all that. But the idea with the essays was, you know, not just to write a memoir, but I wanted to leave something for my grandchildren. 
a life, you know, that also includes their paternal grandfather and all other people that have been very important in my family in Mexico. I'm the only one who came here and stayed. So all of them live in Mexico. So I wanted that. The theme goes from the place I was born and spent my childhood, which was so, in a way, determinant of what I did later. Do you think you could read us a little of that section? Well, yes, I can read actually from the second essay, which is called For Free and Invisible. I was lucky to spend my formative years in a small community that fostered the creation, performance, and appreciation of music, dance, poetry, and storytelling. Haltipan de Morelos, Veracruz, was still a village and had a population of about 2,000 the year I was born, a small tropical community on the Gulf of Mexico's side of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. It lay on a tropical savanna about 40 minutes by car or cranky bus from the coast. It gained its city status in 1953 after the Azufrera Panamericana, the Pan American Sulfur Company, began operations there, attracting workers from all over Mexico. The town's population exploded in the next decade. Before then, migration to the southern half of the state trickled down from the port of Veracruz, where cargo and passenger ships sailing the Atlantic arrived. So it wasn't unusual to find families with North American, German, French, and Italian ancestry and surnames who had arrived from Europe via Cuba and other Caribbean islands where they had relatives and had decided to settle in the region of Sotavento, where Haltipan was located. In many of the region's towns, including Haltipan, four different dialects of the Popoluca were still spoken, in addition to Zapotec and Nahuatl. As expected, Spanish was the dominant language, but it still had great competition from Mexicano, Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica people, the Aztecs. My birthplace owes its name to the Nahuatl words for it, Chaltipac, which literally means place on sands. During the post-conquest era, his name was substituted by his phonetic version in Spanish and became Haltipan. The old town I call home until the beginning of 1954 had four major thoroughfares. They fanned out from the main square, El Parque. Each had an official name. Two of them, Avenida Morelos and Calle Gutierrez Zamora, respectively led to the Trans-Ismic Highway. At some point, it met the Pan-American Highway, which threaded together most of the larger towns throughout Mexico's southern states. Calle Morelos was referred to and known by most native Haltipanecos as El Camino a Cozoliacaque, Minatitlán, the way to the towns of Cozoliacaque and Minatitlán. Calle Gutierrez Zamora was the way to Acayucan, another town. If by definition we consider any world community to be multicultural and multilingual, when many languages and cultures prosper and benefit from contact with one another, then Haltipan was such a place. The generations of the Popoluca, the native Mexicans in the region, were the remaining descendants of the old Olmec, the ancient civilization famous for their carvings of monumental stone heads. When I learned the Popoluca translates into Spanish as gente que habla mucho, people who talk a lot, I found the designation appropriate. Whether inhabitants were pure-blooded descendants of the pre-Columbian Mesoamericans or mestizos or the offspring of more recent European transplants, the native Haltipanecos were gregarious. They loved socializing, playing music, singing and dancing, writing and performing poetry and telling stories. In most areas of town, we enjoyed the use of electricity, but we lacked other modern conveniences. For example, until I was almost six years old, there was no tap water. People caught rainfall and large drums for washing and bathing. Folks who could afford it paid water carriers to bring cans of drinking water to the doorsteps from the natural springs outside town. Twice a week, Tirso El Aguador, the water carrier, brought the spring water to our home. Sometimes, Tirso would let my brother Victor and me sit on his mules while he emptied the cans into the large drinking water ollas in the kitchen. Water carriers were famous for being among the toughest and most foul-tongued men in the region. Our Tirso was no exception. But unlike other water carriers, he delighted in teaching the children in town some of his favorite colorful expressions and instructed us on the right situation for their use. His lessons began with the simplest and more acceptable words like carajo, darn, or que carajo pasa, what the heck or hell's going on, for any kind of mistake or minus mishap. 
Then he moved on to the brighter, redder biggies, which were the more dramatic, hurtful, and socially censored expletives involving mothers and other acts, which I, being four years old, could not even begin to grasp. Tirsus' tone grew deeper and his gestures became more theatrical as Victor and I mastered each word in the litany of biggies he taught us. Six and four years old, Victor and I were Tirsus' star pupils. Being a great deal more cautious than I, Victor did not use his kind of color for language in front of our parents and he suggested I follow his example. A warning that I naturally didn't heed. I filled up with those forbidden words as if they were mangoes or guavas, meaty, sensual and sweet. Encouraged by the soft chuckles of relatives and other adults around me, whenever they heard me, I practiced my newly acquired vocabulary every day. While trying to run fast down the stairs to the backyard, I tripped and almost fell down the steps. Ay, ching, casi me mato. Oh, I almost killed myself. Busy as I was rubbing my sore knee, I didn't see my mom until she was standing next to me with a basket of laundry resting on her hip. I covered my mouth with my hand and prayed to everyone in heaven that she hadn't heard me. My throbbing earlobe benched between my mom's thumb and index fingernails made me immediately aware that my plea had gone unheard up there in the celestial kingdom. Once inside the house, my mother reached for a chilillo, a long, skinny, flexible reed, which she kept at hand for those times when we needed to be reminded that when she said no, she meant exactly that. My brother Victor came running in. When he saw the chilillo in my mom's hand, he knew I was going to get it, but he pleaded with my mom, begging her that he, instead of I, be punished. My mom had a soft spot in her heart for Victor. And my brother had a soft spot in his for me. So my mom whipped the air with a chilillo, then put it down. But warn me, I'll wash your mouth out with soap if I ever hear you use bad language again. That's a promise. No question, I was a willful child. And for months I gave her innumerable opportunities to keep her promise. And she did. That year... I was a four-year-old with the cleanest, though not necessarily the purest, tongue in town. Marvelous. <laughs> Your first encounter with language. Yes. Marvelous. So the struggles and encounters with language continue. Yes. When I was eight years old, as I said, we moved to San Luis Potosí, which was a very traumatic experience for all of us in many, many ways, because San Luis was so different from the tropical town we had grown up in. I had found as a child that silence and melancholy were actually my allies, because I could spend time by myself quiet enough to hear what was going on in my head and my feelings come you know face to face with feelings that were not uh, so pleasant and I was interested in one of those occasions I was interested in learning the language of the devil because el diablo the devil would you know come at night and tempt people at dances and all kinds of situations and these were the tales my grandmother used to my grandmother was a storyteller it was a great storyteller so she said well you know she talks to about riches and power to men and tempts them to be this and that and of course takes their souls but women too you know, he whispers little, you know, uh, sweet nothings in their ears and take their soul. And well, I asked my grandma, you know, what, what does he say to women? Has he ever talked to you? And my grandma said, no, 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 no. I have not been tempted by El Diablo. But at that point, I became interested in the language of El Diablo. What, what were these sweet nothings? So I used to spend a lot of time in the dark sitting at night by myself while everybody was asleep waiting for El Diablo to show up and teach me <laughs> the language, his language because I was interested in learning so even at that early age of course all prompted and you know encouraged by my, my grandmother's stories I was already becoming a storyteller I just didn't know it at the time the essays there are 11 12, I think, 12 essays in the book, ranging in length and, and subject and all that. But all of them go through the four 
places and the four stages in my life. If you read the whole book from beginning to end, you will get a novel, actually. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in chapters. But if you prefer to read just one of the essays or two or one at a time, you can do that perfectly well. You will still be able to tell what is going on. And all those skills are actually what I acquire in writing the fiction. I don't judge my characters. I present them as I believe they are and let the reader make up their minds because you deal with so much stuff that has to do with other people. For example, I went through a very, very painful divorce. Now, it would be very easy for me to trash my ex-husband. <laughs> and I have been tempted every so often. But I think, in a way, making peace with that part of my life already makes me see things in a more objective way and present him and treat him as I treat my characters with respect to who they are, not trying to influence them or make them into what I want. So uh, trying to understand why they are doing what they're doing. And In and this memoir, you treat him very fairly. You credit him with opening up a lot of your intellectual yes, life. it is true. It is true. I was in San Luis Potosí, a super Catholic city, and I don't know, I, I, I was different. You know, I adapted to socially to, to everything. I got a very good education there, too. I had lots of friends and I had lots of, you know, young men who wanted to be boyfriends, too. <laughs> but the reason I was attracted to my first husband is that he, like the devil, whispered sweet nothings in my ear. And the sweet nothings were things that I had been starving for, knowledge, reading, more expanding my horizons. Can you read us a little more from your book? Yes. Confessions of a Book Burner. Of a Book Burner. This has to do a little bit with when I met Gloria Damasco, who is the detective in my novels. I have four novels in her series, and it's a eulogy for a brown angel. The first one, the second one is Cactus Blood. Third one is Black Widow's Wardrobe. And then the fourth one is Death at Solstice. I'm going to read a little bit about The Roads Not Taken. There is a, a, an essay in the book that speaks about destiny, pursuing destiny. And so there are times when we miss. So there are other roads that we take. And so this is to do with the roads taken. One of those roads led me to the fulfillment of a childhood dream to write a mystery novel. In 1989, during a sojourn in California, Sierra Nevada, I first briefly saw and heard Chicana P.I. Gloria Damasco, the lead detective in a series of novels I was to write, and the woman who would eventually tell the Malinche story in Black Widow's Wardrobe, the third in the series of four Gloria Damasco detective novels. I had gone to the Sierra Nevada specifically to revise and organize my second poetry manuscript, Variaciones sobre la Tempestad, Variations on the Storm, which was already due at the press. The late Ted and Peewee Kalman, whom I had met through Kathy and Alcides, offered me their condo for a week in the town of Donner Lake, a short drive from Lake Tahoe. I accepted. A good thing was that my good friend and publisher at Third Woman's Press, Norma Larcon and her husband, visited me there for a couple of days, and we had a chance to talk about the project. Then they went on to explore the Lake Tahoe area on their way back to Oakland. At the end of three days of intense work, my manuscript was ready. I put back in a folder the photocopies of loose poems that I had decided not to include in the collection. One by one, I burned the extra Xerox copies of all the poems, but not of Kathy's translations. I also threw in the pyre all those poems that I didn't consider to be good enough for inclusion in the collection or to keep in the unpublished work folder. I was done. But since I had the condo for two more days, I decided to stay and get some rest. I had taken with me some CDs, among them a recording of the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly. I'm not an opera buff, but for some unknown reason I was obsessed with that opera, especially the aria Umbel D. I had also started a list of books I wanted to read about the architecture, viticulture, and the wine industry in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys, also known as the California Wine Country. Before my stay in Donner Lake, I had made repeated trips to both valleys looking into the history of the 
Vallejo family in Sonoma and the Peralta family in Oakland. Following my obsessions at the time, I had frequently driven to Los Angeles to study gangs and events that led to a riot during the 1970 National Chicano Moratorium. I was also researching an elixir I had come across during a visit with my son when he spent his junior year abroad in Brazil. I had already decided to write my first mystery novel, Eulogy for a Brown Angel, and sensed more than knew that all of my obsessions and interests had to do with the plotting of the novel. Yet I had no idea how how they would eventually fit together, nor had I conceived my main character, the detective that would need access to all that knowledge and experience. Looking to research some of these topics during my sojourn in the mountains, I paid a fruitless visit to a local bookstore in Lake Tahoe. I bought instead a P.D. James mystery novel and drove back to Donner Lake. After a walk along the lakeshore, I went back to the condo when dark, heavy clouds began to gather above the mountains. Sunset was still two hours away. I locked the sliding doors to the lake before I went up the spiral staircase to the living area. I turned on my CD player and listened to Puccini's opera, then lay down on the sofa to read P.D. James' mystery yarn. About an hour later, I slipped into a deep sleep, only to be awakened later by a loud noise. I opened my eyes, total darkness. I was sure someone was in the sleeping area downstairs. My fears immediately raced down the spiral staircase to the sliding doors. Had I locked them after all? Was someone down there lurking, waiting? How long before the intruder made his way up the spiral staircase? I listened intently, but all I could hear and feel were my intermittent breaths and the rapid beating of my heart. I was trembling from head to toe. But I forced myself to sit up while I weighed the risks of going downstairs and confronting the intruder. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, and as quietly as possible, I walked to the fireplace and got hold of the poker. I began my descent barefoot, Taking one step in deep breath at a time, I stood at the foot of the stairs and surveyed the area, then walked to the sliding doors and checked them. They were locked. I looked behind each closet and room door and under each bed until I was satisfied no one was there. As I got to the top of the stairs, my heart did a Mexican head dance in my chest. Something or someone, a white raggedy gown on, its arms flailing wildly, swayed and gestured just outside the sliding doors to the dark balcony. It's not of this world, I thought. My heart picked up its pace. The phantasm went on with his macabre dancing. I put down the poker and looked around for a cross or a crucifix. I sucked in a nervous chuckle as I realized that I would not find such an object there. My friends, the commons, were Jewish. In the absence of a ghost-busting instrument, I crossed one index finger over the other to make a cross and walked closer to the sliding doors. The specter turned out to be a large white windsock dancing in the night air. I had no idea who had hung it from a branch of the pine next to the balcony during my long nap. I dropped to the floor, scared out of my wits. Still shaking and breathing hard, I made myself a cup of coffee and sat in an easy chair, cloaked in a cotton blanket in darkness, unable to close my eyes and get some sleep. Closer to dawn, I turned on the CD player, low, hoping that Madame Butterfly would lull me to sleep. It took a long while for the soprano to reach the first heart-wrenching phrases of the area, Umbeldi, and for my eyes to finally close for what seemed only seconds, as if on a light red screen inside my lids, I saw a pair of dark hands and arms, and nestled between them a little boy, a toddler who appeared to be asleep. I am Gloria. And this child is for you, a woman's voice said as she handed me the little boy. I extended my arms to receive her gift. They were still outstretched when I opened my eyes. I heard the crack of thunder in the distance, the same noise that had awakened me the previous night. It was noon and the thunderstorm was moving in. It would soon be raging right above Donner Lake. Driving down the mountain in such unsettled weather made no sense. I made lunch and ate. Then I picked up my notebook and wrote. Luisa and I found the child lying on his side in a fetal position. This is the opening line of eulogy for a brown angel. My first Gloria Damasco mystery novel. That's marvelous. Thank you. It's wonderful to be able to hear you read it. It's so different than when I read it to myself. And you really describing how you went about writing a mystery. You wrote a mystery. Yes. This has been really marvelous. 
really marvelous confessions of a book burner by Lucha Corpi, who's been reading to us and discussing with us how she went about writing it, why she went about writing it, and sharing with us her role as a poet and her role as a novelist, and doing it all with beauty and courage. Thank you so much, Lucha Thank you, Corpi. Nina. It's been a pleasure. We'll be speaking with a film director of Diez Mil Kilometros, 10,000 Miles, a love story of a couple struggling with distance. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and although we're constantly here talking about struggle in America's fight for resources and land, we're talking about deportations and about fights around police brutality. These are themes of our shows, but as you all know, art, culture, poetry, and film is what keeps us going, keeps us moving. And I have on the line with us a director, Carlos Marquez Marcet. He's the director of a new film that is going to start being shown here in the Bay Area on July 10th. It's a, it called 10,000 Kilometers, and I got a chance to watch this film. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for you. I really enjoy this film for many reasons, one of which is I think it's really rare that you see relationships depicted on the big screen in a way that's actually relatable. Why don't you take a step back and give our listeners a synopsis of what your film is about? Oh, it's the story of a couple, Sergi and Alexandra, that um, live in Barcelona. They've been together seven years, and they're trying to have a baby. When she gets an offer for a job to develop a photography project in Los Angeles, and she leaves to live there for some time, and it's this time of them apart trying to survive, to make the relationship survive. Something that I really enjoyed about this film, 10,000 Kilometers, is you get to feel, and a lot of us who have done long-distance relationships, you know that now with technology, things have changed. Skype and WhatsApp, all these different things play a big role in their relationship. So why don't you talk to us about how the story develops and how you tell the story of a couple that's really trying to make it work so far away. Yeah, to me it was very important to show, you know, because many times when you see a movie that they deal with long-distance relationships, they show the time that they reunite each other and they see each other, but actually what, what we spend most of the time doing is talking through Skype or FaceTime and writing emails, checking Facebook. So to me it was also creating a language with all these tools of the Internet and make a movie that it's not, you know, just like two people talking or, or doing things, but it could be like very cinematographic. A little bit you see the evolution of the couple, how they miss each other, how they do this, try to create this everyday life, like having dinner together or, you know, like even trying to have sex through the Internet and all these kind of things that you end up trying to create this everyday life with the person that is not with you. And also the main character is a photographer and you kind of get a sense of how for her, oftentimes we have that feeling when someone's ever been in a long distance relationship, they know that sometimes it's like you've split your life in half because you're partly living with the other person and you're almost on hold. So the main character, she's a photographer and you can see how she in many ways has to separate herself to continue her work. Can you talk about some ways that you tell the story through film? Yeah, to me, it was a kind of creating little fragments. So I, I feel like you're on this relationship, you don't really have the whole picture. You have little pieces of these other people's lives. So basically, it's all it's, the movie is structured in days, how, how many days it's passing. So you kind of, there's a little holes in the middle where you as an audience have to kind of, you know, figure out uh, your, you know, what's going on in between them. You can follow them emotionally, but also there's like some holes where everybody who has gone through a long-distance relationship can put their own experience, you know, so people can really relate because it's, at the end it's like something that many, many people have gone through and, and to me it was trying to feel that everybody can put their own experience in there. 
I'm speaking to director Carlos Marquez Marcet. He is the director of 10,000 Kilometers, which comes out Friday, July 10th, and hits Bay Area theaters then. So you've touched on some of these themes about how this idea of being with someone who's so far away is pretty universal. This film, the characters are from Barcelona. You can see their apartment in Barcelona, and you can see um, one of the characters, her par- apartment in um, Los Angeles. What do you think makes this film universal? Yeah, no, I feel, first of all, it's like it's coming all over the world, you know? Like, it's been funny. We've been showing the movies to festivals, and we release the movie in many countries. And everybody, it doesn't matter which, which language, which culture, everybody has gone. It's like, it's like an epidemic that is happening all around the world with globalization. And I feel it's, at the end it's also about relationships and love, you know, in a generation that, you know, that we are we're living in, you know, in a different world also that, that it used to be. And, and we can be in many places at the same time, but at the same time we miss the physicality of each other. Yeah, and it also highlights what we don't often see, the many ways that we now communicate where before maybe people would write a letter and that letter would be received at time. Now it's texting, Facebook messages, it's WhatsApp, it's little voice messages, it's you know calling through Skype, it's having the video camera. So the way of being in touch is, is very different. For you, do you feel like there are any, any kind of learnings about relationships that you think people walk away with after watching your film? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the kind of filmmaker that wants to lecture, you know, oh, you should know that, people. I, I'm, I'm, I like more to make questions, you know. I question myself, and I try to make people also to help people question them. So I'm not trying to say, for example, technology is good or bad, but I'm trying to think, to think oh, we, lose, we win some things with technology, but we lose some others, you know. When you used to write letters, there was a space for imagination. You could really create, you know, an image, beautiful words, now that you have to talk through, you know, through a webcam every day, sometimes it's, that's draining too, you know, and, and it makes you miss, you know, the physicality. Uh, so it's, it's not like one really like knowledge, but to me, to me it was important to think that we, we really need to fight for the things we want, that unluckily love is not enough. We need to build relationships, you know, relationships are more than love. Uh, and that was an important thing I wanted to think about, but not saying to people, you have to feel this or you have to feel the other. Um, speaking to director Carlos Marquez Marcet, he's the director of 10,000 Kilometers, which comes out Friday, July 10th. It's great to see a film that shows all the crazy things that happen to people when they're far away and have lots of ways to connect, but maybe feel a little alienated and, you know, can follow them on Facebook and the Internet and see what they're tweeting and all the scary things technology makes us do when our minds are getting away from us. So, muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. We Look forward to seeing your film here in the Bay Area. Ustedes, muchas gracias. Un abrazo. Miras todo al revés. No caminas con los pies. Y aunque sientes que todo el mundo te ve, nadie te ve. La Raza Chronicles offers you a chance to win a pair of tickets to the indie pop concert of Peruvian musicians Alejandro and Maria Laura with Mexican singer Edna Vasquez on July 25th at 7 p.m. at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts by the 24th and Mission Bart Street Station in San Francisco. You may be the lucky winner. Call right now, 510-848-4425. That's 510-848-4425. We'll take the second and fifth caller, 848-4425 in 510-Buena-Suerte.
Coming up next, we'll hear about Soul Collective and how they're featuring Latino arts and images in Sacramento this weekend. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I have Estela Sanchez on the line with me. She she is a part of the Soul Collective that has been doing some big things in Sacramento. And we have her on the line with us because starting July 11th, there's going to be a new show up at the gallery. And this show is going to tackle some really core issues that we've been talking about on the show. Estela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Sela, oftentimes, you know, we go to galleries and we see some beautiful work, but we don't always see ourselves and we don't always see the struggle in terms of community work we're doing on a day-to-day depicted in galleries. So tell us a little bit about what this show that opens up on July 11th is hoping to tackle. Soul Collective, first of all, is an arts and cultural center in Sacramento, California, and we always have aimed to make sure that art is accessible and that art is used as a tool for empowering our communities and that it is a place when you come in, you're seeing art that relates to you so that it's art for the community. And so we're really excited to be hosting of Love and Riots, July 11th to September 8th here at Full Collective. And it's an amazing, incredible exhibit together by the Presser Struggle Collective, which is a bicoastal Art and Activist Collective, and they will be creating works around a lot of the social justice issues that are relevant to our communities right now with Black Lives Matter, uh, with police injustice and brutality. Um, And so they'll be creating work to really start the conversation and to highlight some of the activists uh, work that's being done around these issues in our community and to really uh, continue to spark the, the conversation and um, hopefully in our communities to push us to look for solutions. That's the voice of Estela Sanchez. She is part of the Soul Collective based in Sacramento. So Estela, in Sacramento, talk to us about the intersection of social change and art. What's the scene like in Sacramento? Well, Sacramento, as you know, we're, you know, we're the capital of uh, California. And so uh, with the capital being here, you know, there's a lot of protests that happen on a, on a daily basis, you know, just regular basis here. And so art is an important part of that. And I think we have a long local history of art and activism. I think for me, I can think back and who has made one of the biggest impacts on myself and a lot of the community members here. Uh, specifically Chicano community members, have been the RCAF, the Royal Chicano Air Force. And so they left a really beautiful and strong legacy of using art as a way to empower the community to to highlight what is happening. So they were a group of um, artists who used um, silk screening, you know, posters, painting, murals, creating installations, to really talk about the struggles that our communities were having. So we have a beautiful legacy here in Sacramento of art and activism. And I think that has continued in many ways. Many of those artists ended up becoming professors in the local university. And so many local artists and activists had the opportunity to study with them or to do work with them just in the community outside of the university as well. And so that continues. I think that idea of really understanding that art is a tool um, continues in the local community. So you see it um, around the capital, you know, on a regular basis and the silk screen posters and the puppets that are created um, and the murals that are in all of our different um, neighborhoods here in the city. So, yeah, I think it's part of our legacy here being in the capital of California. And Estela, talk to us about Soul Collective and some of the issues that you all are primarily tackling. What right now is most urgent for folks in Sacramento in terms of the injustices that they see? Um, I think like many other cities, we're, you know, very concerned with with the relationship between police and community. And, you know, we have an understanding that this needs to change. You know, how, how much more can we can we put up with it's time for for something to change and so i think like in many cities people here are tired of seeing young people being murdered by the police and um the community continuing to have such a a strained 
relationship with uh, those who are supposed to, quote-unquote, protect us. I think in Sacramento, it's the same as in most urban cities right now. That's an area of just huge concern. Estela, talk to us about the gallery and how folks can plug in. Let's say there are people in the Sacramento area that are also doing art, that speaking to some of these similar issues, and they want people to connect with. They feel maybe isolated. Maybe they're not in Sacramento, Sacramento. Maybe they're a little further away. Tell us about the collective and tell us about the gallery. Yes, the Soul Collective, I'm the founder and director of it. We started it 10 years ago, and actually this exhibit of Love of Lyrics is going to be kind of a celebration of our, our 10 years here in Sacramento. So that's very exciting to uh, have an exhibit that kind of exemplifies our culture and activism, what we stand for. And so um, aside from having monthly exhibits, we also host the Sacramento Activist School where community members can come and learn about different local and global issues that are happening as well as get connected with local groups that are organizing around these issues, be it police issues, you know, global social injustice, um, immigration issues, both locally and nationally. So there is, you know, a group of community members that comes and organizes weekly here in in Soul Collective. Um, we also have a curanderismo um, program that happens for those who are trying to get um, connected back to their cultural roots. And so we really have a wide variety of programs that happen outside of just the art. And um, people are welcome to come in, check out our website, um, find us on Facebook, and um, stay in touch with all of the um, diverse programming that we offer. And um, the majority of it is free or low cost, and no one has ever turned away for lack of fun. And this specific show, commemorating your 10 years, celebrating 10 years in the community, giving back, creating this important space. So why don't you give us the specifics around this show? Yeah, so of Love and Riots by Trisha Struggle Collective opens Saturday, July 11th from 6 to 10 p.m., and it is a free event. All ages are welcome. And the gallery will be hosting a show with gallery hours Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 2 to 5 p.m. and by appointment. And the show runs to September 8th. Um, so we really hope that people are able to come and check this exhibit out. Um, we're really excited to be able to host it, and we're really honored to continue to work um, and partner with Trust Your Struggle. It's been a 10-year uh, partnership, so they were also one of the first art collectives to show work when we first opened our space. So we're really excited to be celebrating our 10-year anniversary with them. So Estela, tell us again, how do people connect with the Soul Collective and this space? Um, people can find us on Facebook at Soul Collective, and that's S-O-L like Sun Collective. And we are also at, on the web at soulcollective.org and on all of the social media under Soul Collective as well. So um, really encourage people to um, connect with us and um, check out the programming that we offer. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM Community Powered Radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, just search for La Raza Chronicles on SoundCloud.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook for updates on news, arts, and culture from El Mundo Latino. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.